and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Katie Brand and I'm delighted to be joined by a journalist, comedian and author who since her teens believed her surname was Russian. This led her to studying two degrees in the subject and becoming editor-at-large for Russian Vogue. She later found out her surname was not in the slightest bit Russian, but that is one way to make a career choice. It's the wonderful Viv Groskop. Hello. Hello. Or Viv, or Vipukula, or Vivka. What was you your... You can call me all of these things. Vipulia, Vipulinka, <laughs> Vipka. And this um, is uh, all of these names, we should just explain, come from your book, The Anna Karenina Fix, which is a kind of part memoir, part self-help, part introduction to Russian literature, in which you talk about these diminutive names that are so common in Russian, aren't they? Whenever you start reading any Russian novel, you're always assaulted by the character having 50 different names, none of which seem to bear any relation to each other. And then when I went to Russia for the first time when I was 18 in the early 1990s, Russians were just as confused by my name, which is Vivian, but Viv for short, Mm -hmm. as I was by their name. So they just called me Vipka or Vipulia or Vipulinka. And you give a very funny literal translation for that in your book, which is the equivalent in English of them calling you... Teeny tiny little VIP. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I love it. Well, I will call you Viv, if that's okay. Please do. So, Viv, you're here to talk about your book, The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons We Can All Learn From Russian Literature. And according to Penguin Podcast Tradition, you've brought along a few objects that have influenced and inspired your writing, and we'll be going through those as the interview continues. Uh, But first of all, just tell us a little bit about the book, because it's quite an unusual format. The Russian classics, they're not necessarily the place people would go to for self-help, particularly, but you're very convincing in the way you write about them, in that each of the most famous Russian authors that you go through, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Pushkin, Chekhov, and each of them seems to have such a distinct character to their writing uh, and that you're able to draw out lessons that we should learn about life from them. Where did you get that idea from? The real catalyst for it was the BBC One adaptation of War and Peace, And I was blogging about it on a weekly basis for The Guardian and people would come on and comment on that week's episode. And there'd be thousands of comments. People were talking about the characters if they really knew them, trying to understand what Tolstoy meant by certain things. But it was all in this very light and accessible vein. I just found so inspiring. So at that moment, I went back to my agent and said, look, I really think there's a market for this book. People are ready to hear about these authors and hear about their lives without it being a heavy academic book. That is part of the issue with Russian literature, isn't it? And I confess it's my issue with Russian literature. I've read barely any of them. I've certainly not finished one because I think of it as this clump of intimidating work that I think of in my head as Russian literature. And I've loved reading your book because it's a brilliant primer for Russian literature. And suddenly I realise it's not as intimidating as I thought. There's no reason not to start War and Peace. Yeah, absolutely, because especially especially for Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, these writers were like Dickens in that they were commissioned on the fly for money, often episodically. So they have to produce these things sometimes for magazines with the case of some of their writing. So we don't need to approach it as if it's this great big finished 1,000 page thing that you've got to read from start to finish or else you're a terrible person. And the, the way you found your way into it was this, as we said, this idea that you yourself were Russian? I got this idea in my head that it sounded a bit Russian. 
And the more I started to read Russian, and I found this copy of Anna Karenina in a in a charity shop when I was about twelve or thirteen, it just gathered more and more momentum. This idea, this fantasy, without me ever having to really voice it, and then it just took on a life of its own because I went to go and study Russian at university. Then I went to go and live in Russia on and off in the in the nineties. And then when I was back home, people would say to me. Oh, you must be Russian because your name sounds Russian and you speak Russian and you spent lots of time in Russia. And it became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it wasn't as if I went around introducing myself to people and saying, "Oh, hello, I am Russian." Actually, uh, it was more that in my head I was thinking, "I'm just discovering my roots in a way that my family never wanted to." And then, of course, with the invention of the internet, it all came crashing down because clearly in 1970s Somerset, I can't go looking at my family tree. But with the invention of email and the internet, a cousin contacted us who we didn't know at all in Canada, Bob Grosskop, mm-hmm. and he had traced the whole of the family tree, which my grandfather was able to look at and see names that he hadn't seen since the 1920s. And of course, we're not Russian at all; we're Polish and we're Jewish, and our name means fathead. <laughs> so this for me that was a devastating moment and I just have come to believe that it's the most brilliant example of normative determinism of I have done the most fathead thing you could ever do and choose the wrong country the wrong language the wrong literature and you know as you went there and you talk about taking great solace in the classics, reading them as you were there, walking down paths that writers that you were admiring had also walked down, eating the kinds of things they ate. And in terms of really kind of igniting a passion for it and an interest in it, there's a great moment where you go and see a theatre production in London, I think, of Eugene Onegin, and uh, you have a bit of an epiphany. And I think we've got a clip of that now that we can just have a listen to from the Anna Karenina fix. The theatre was showing a Russian production by Moscow's Vaktangov Theatre. My appreciation of this production was very possibly influenced by an accident that occurred in the bar shortly before the performance started. I was at the theatre alone because I was reviewing the play for a radio programme. I arrived relatively early and, being someone who rarely goes to the Barbican, I decided to investigate the eating and drinking offerings of this cultural venue. I soon found a bar that served what looked like the most inventive cocktails, including one that featured a favourite ingredient, lavender. Very possibly it was a martini bar, and so a lavender martini. I ordered this drink. When it arrived, I drank it, and it was delicious. About halfway through drinking it, I thought to myself, this is lovely, but it tastes nothing like lavender. It was the wrong drink. I looked at the bartender... I'm really sorry, I said. I know I've drunk most of this, but I've just realised it's not what I ordered. I wanted the lavender one. He rightly judged that it was not worth arguing with someone who had just drunk half a cocktail far too quickly and made me the lavender one, and so I drank it. I can't remember now what the other drink was. They were both equally delicious. All this is to say that by the time I sat down to watch Eugene and Nagin, I was in an extremely receptive mood. This was an example of someone accidentally being the author of their own good fortune, which is the opposite of what happens in Anagin. That was the Anna Karenina fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature, written and read by my guest Viv Groskop. So um, you're basically saying you have to get a bit drunk 
to really appreciate it. I was it. listening to that <laughs> and thinking this is just an excuse for me to have a lot of cocktails. Um, but in this this production of Eugene and Agin is so full of, of life and vigour and it's just funny and, and the costumes are beautiful and it really reminded me of that quality of lightness that I think we struggle sometimes to find in these books because of the, their ridiculous reputation. Well, the classic uh, misconception is around Chekhov, isn't it? That that he conceived of them, I believe this may be apocryphal, but as comedies, yes. but for many years in the UK. I think we've got better at that more recently. But for many years, they were played as extremely serious tragedies, whereas in fact, they're very satirical. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think there's something to do with the idea of lost in translation to some extent. It can be very dry, but I think if people approach it as neutrally as possible, it reads off the page as a comedy and you can see immediately that you know Chekhov is very much not a writerly kind of person. He was a doctor, he was a man of the people who was always torn between doing his doctoring and doing his writing. Actually, the way you described him, I found myself having quite a crush on Chekhov. Oh, he's do you good. have a crush on Chekhov as well? I do, you have to have a crush on Chekhov. Of all of them, is he the sexiest Chekhov, would um, you say? Would he the one you'd have gone for in real life, do you think? Definitely, Yeah. definitely, because... Tolstoy was just absolutely awful. Also, he obsessed person. with eggs. Yeah, which I, I don't. You don't want to share a bed with a man obsessed with eggs. No, his favourite eggs dish was Brussels sprouts and scrambled eggs. Nice. <laughs> and he made his wife copy out his novels seven times by hand. Mm-hmm. So no, can't have Tolstoy. Dostoevsky was completely and utterly deranged and and I say that with sympathy because I do think he had a lot of unacknowledged mental illness he had epilepsy he had all kinds of um, really serious mental illnesses that weren't properly recognised or diagnosed at the time um, but he was a very difficult person to live with Chekhov yeah he was, he was a doctor he could look after you I wrote beautiful letters um, very nice man very nice, very kind, man. empathetic. I mean, he did get very sickly towards the end of his life and for quite a long time. So mm. you would have had to nurse him through tuberculosis for about four or five years. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think Bulgakov is also. I know. Well, you wrote. I've never yeah. heard of him, and you wrote him about him also in a very compelling yeah, and attractive way. The author way. of Master and Margarita. He's yes. he's an attractive person. I think this is the thing, isn't it? Is that it's introducing this lightness. I associate Russian literature with sort of heavy notions of death and fate of being the sort of tent poles of Russian literature and that can be quite intimidating. But I'm fascinated by the notion of fate. Uh, and in one particular incredibly compelling anecdote that you tell in the book where you really came up against this notion for the first time, which relates to your first object that you've brought in. A Clinique compact. A Clinique makeup oh, contact. You're just snapping it open yeah, and shut there for some, uh, for just a bit of audio colour yeah. there for the listeners. Yeah, my first, so my first object is this uh, Clinique Makeup Compact, which is not the original Clinique Makeup Compact, which is featured in the book. I, I'm just, for reasons I will explain. Yes, I'm going to say, I'm just, I'm nodding in a relieved way <laughs> that it's not the one you mentioned is, in the book. It is a recreation that I bought when the book came out. This happened in in St. Petersburg in 1993 when I had only just arrived to spend a year in Russia as part of my university course. I had to spend a year. So previously, I had been out to Russia uh, a couple of times and I had made this group of Russian friends. And within a couple of weeks of my arriving, a girl in this group of friends committed suicide. This was a very, obviously, horrible and tragic and awful but it was a very weird moment for me because 
I didn't know how this group of friends would expect me to behave. And I very quickly realised that I was going to be treated as the honoured foreigner who would come to grieve amongst us. It was sort of conveyed to you that it would be your fate to go somehow. Yes, yes, this was her fate that had befallen her, even though it doesn't really make any sense, does it? (laughs) Uh, But it was, yes, it was all of our fate that we must go through with this. So I had this, uh, some of the boys from our group of friends came to collect me at 5.30 in the morning to go to wherever the funeral was. I also had no idea where we'd be going. And they said to me, Prinisiti maquillage, prinisi maquillage. And I could understand what they said, so I, I did as they said, and I brought the makeup, maquillage. And I didn't really think too much about why. And then we travelled a very, very long way, way out of the city limits, because uh, I eventually realised um, suicides cannot be buried in the same cemeteries um, as people who've died of natural causes. So we had to go to this place in the middle of nowhere that was next to another word that I could recognise, morgue, and laid out with lots and lots of other d- dead bodies openly. But you sort of almost describe it as being like a barn in the middle of nowhere somehow, or like a sort of refrigerated building. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Just And you walked in not really expecting to see lots of people. No, like, what, dead and I had never people. seen a dead body before. And then suddenly there were 15, including very sadly your friend. Yeah, so it was very weird. And then this other group of friends came up um, and said... Um, Avi Puglia, Prinisla Makiash, did the teeny tiny little VIP bring the makeup? And they took it away. And when we were all ushered in to, you're supposed to kiss the corpse. And she was, my friend was dressed as a bride of Christ. So she was dressed in a wedding dress. And they had made her up using my makeup. Wow. So that Clinique Compact was never seen again. Yes, remained with your friend, perhaps, yes. to take her into wherever she is now, nicely yeah. made up with Clinique products. But that was a peculiar demonstration of how they related to the idea of Westernness, because mm. this was seen as being uh, a great honour that she had been made up with proper makeup that had come from a proper foreign friend. And and this was something really hopeful and good to cling on to. I love this story. First of all, it seems to encapsulate the kind of tragedy and comedy, this sort of incredibly dark, sort of so awful you've got to smile sort of sense of it. But also being so far from home in a culture that feels very different, however Russian you may be in your soul. Like, wow, I really don't understand where I am. And I thought maybe I understood these people. But actually, perhaps I have a lot to learn. Did, did you, and oh, yeah, you go that, home in like a kind of dream, like that was just surreal. That was the moment I did think, even if I spoke Russian fluently, even if I knew these people much better, even if I lived in this country, this will always be alien to me. But also that sense of um, reality and perception of thinking you can cope with something and then finding perhaps you can't or thinking you are something and then finding that you're not. And there's a brilliant anecdote that I absolutely related to involving an assignment that you went on when you worked for a Russian newspaper where you went to interview a man who was there uh, with the local circus. And he was having an identity crisis of his own in some respects, which I love. It was just such an incredible... It's just such a brilliant illustration of how we can delude ourselves. And I absolutely loved this story in the book. And we've got the clip here, so I'd love to listen to it. I can still see him shaking his head insistently as he corrected me. 
So when you started out as a clown, Yanya Clown, I'm not a clown. Oh yes, um, I'm so sorry. Uh, so when you became a clown, Yanya Clown, I'm not a clown. His act was amazing. Hedgehogs would come and go on his command. They were hedgehogs he had caught himself in the wild and spent months domesticating. He taught them to run around and jump over each other with the help of various strategically placed ramps. During the finale of his show, he would put a hedgehog in one end of a tube and it would come out as a porcupine at the other. One of his greatest challenges in life, he sighed, was getting the porcupine to stay in the tube during the show. This had taken a lot of training. This non-clown really was an extraordinary character. They were extraordinary hedgehogs. And I was very pleased with my scoop. When I got back to the office and wrote up my copy, I was called into the editor's office. Editor. Why do you keep saying in the copy that he's not a clown? Me. Because he was at great pains to point out that he's not a clown. He's a world-renowned animal trainer. He would be very upset if I didn't say explicitly that he isn't a clown. Editor. But look at the picture. The circus has supplied a picture of this man posing alongside the hedgehogs and the no longer recalcitrant porcupine. He was wearing a massive fright wig, a Piero costume, full face makeup and a red nose. I paused. Yeah, I guess he pretty much looks like a clown. Editor, you need to take out the stuff about him not being a clown. I nodded reluctantly. I got the point. No story makes sense if it contradicts what's in front of your face. On the other hand, in his own eyes, this guy was not a clown. The moral of this story is, I suppose, if you are not a clown, do not dress up as a clown. Or, in other words, sometimes other people can see more clearly who you are than you can. Just a great line. If you're not a clown, don't dress up as a clown. I just, <laughs> I feel like for me personally, that was quite an arresting life lesson, I think. You say that you, this clown or non-clown uh, or animal trainer, depending on, um, you know, whose shoes you're standing in, was suffering from a Dostoevskian idea of nightmarish self-delusion, uh, which is just a, a fantastic way of saying you're being a bit of a pretentious knob. Yeah, well, that is the story of Raskolnikov in mm. Crime and Punishment. You know, he believes that he is destined for great things and he must commit an act of greatness. I mean, it's actually quite relevant for today's social media era of, you know, I must get more followers. I must do something amazing. I must make, make myself appear great. Uh, and actually, all you're really doing is just going around dressed as a clown saying but I'm not a clown why does no one understand well I'm very relevant now because it feels like double think is now a, just an old concept now called fake news where we're constantly told to not believe the evidence in front of our eyes and just yeah. but also it put me in mind of on a much smaller scale in terms of people's just day-to-day -day lives being told what they are by the Soviet Union you're a gymnast that's yes. what you are well, and you're going to go um, and do that you're an engineer because you're good at yeah, math go I was, and do it I was just thinking of that during that clip as well because the idea of identifying who you are according to a profession or an academic tradition was a huge thing in the Soviet Union, often because those were the only things people could cling on to because they weren't able to 
own their own business, make loads of money, you know, define themselves as a successful entrepreneur, define themselves as a brilliant artist. You know, there were very um, few avenues for expression. So people took that label very seriously. So you you, you were a clown in the circus or you were not a clown in the circus, you were an animal trainer. So people would often say to me, you know, who who are you? And and it's an interesting expression in Russian because you would say kiem which is another contraction of who. It means as whom are you? So as whom or as what do you work? And I would have to answer, not I'm a student or I'm a writer, but your philolog. I am a philologist. Right. I'm the person who is studying languages. My friend of mine was working as a lino salesman, but he would say, I am a scientist because he had studied science. But And the, of all the things that he could define himself as, that was his preference. That's yes, he... he would not say I'm a lino salesman. But it's not a lie. It's just choosing the thing you would most like to be about yourself. I mean, with the clown... Uh, or not the clown, he is an, He is essentially, there's some truth in what he's saying, he is an animal trainer, he has trained hedgehogs and a porcupine to do incredible things, but that's what he chose to say about himself, which plays into your second object that you've brought along here to show us, and it sort of connects quite nicely, I'm just having a look at it here, that uh, a picture of a hedgehog, quite a nice link from the not-a-clown animal trainer. So just tell us a bit about why we've got a picture of a hedgehog here. So obviously I love hedgehogs because of the clown, but there's another hedgehog concept in Russian literature which is really important. And it comes from an idea that was very prevalent around the 1950s in literary criticism that there are two kinds of people who are represented in literature and it also can be kinds of people who are readers or even writers. And that is one is to be a hedgehog and one is to be a fox. And I think this comes very originally from a fragment of ancient Greek poetry, doesn't it? Yes. That there is a quote from an ancient Greek poet that just fragments of his work remain, but one is, I think it's, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one great thing. Yes. And based on that, you can sort of roughly divide people into different personality types, foxes and hedgehogs. Yes. It always makes me think of that Woody Allen film as well. Yes, Husbands and Wives. (laughs) Where they talk about where she is, the the character, it's a very funny scene where the character is lady is lying back having some nice things done to her by a man (laughs) and all you hear is her internal monologue where she's dividing her friends up into foxes and hedgehogs. Yes. uh, Which became a bit of a dinner party game I think in the 50s as a result of Isaiah Berlin's Yeah, it was from Isaiah Berlin that this this essay came about. The Hedgehog and the Fox. Um, This concept of hedgehog and fox immediately became transplanted onto Russian literature and people started to ask, you know, which author is a hedgehog, which a fox, is Anna Karenina a hedgehog or a fox? I once met um, this Russian novelist called Boris Akunin who writes these wonderful Agatha Christie type novels that I really recommend. Um, he lives mostly in the UK but sometimes in Moscow as well. And when I first met him, he said, are you Dostoevsky party or Tolstoy party? <laughs> Very seriously, which is also a bit like asking, are you hedgehog or fox? And Tolstoy was the fox and Dostoevsky is thought to be the hedgehog. Well, the thing is, I never quite know. People argue it both ways. I think we're all a bit of each, aren't we? Well, the idea is that if you are the fox and you know many, many things, then you're open-minded and you're pluralist. And the idea is that Tolstoy, towards the end of his life 
became less like that because he became more dogmatic. Whereas the ideas in Anna Karenina and War and Peace are very open and humanist and he's very forgiving of people's sins and he really understands human psychology and is very open to anything happening. Whereas the hedgehog is a more Dostoevsky concept of God is in charge and if you mess around, God is going to get in the way. And did this lead, this sort of personality clashes lead to rivalries and nastiness between the authors who were contemporary with each other? Oh, yes. I mean, once you get into that, it is hilarious. There's they one particular thing. Each other. <laughs> Tolstoy, who became sort of uncomfortable friends with Chekhov, uh, went to see him and had quite an unpleasant encounter, I think. What, what was it he whispered? He said something like, I hate Shakespeare, but your plays are even worse. Yeah. You'll know I hate your place. <laughs> I love to see you whisk beckons him in. Come yeah. close, I whisper. Yeah. I hate but your But that place. wasn't as bad as what I think was even worse, what he said about Turgenev. So Turgenev and Tolstoy were both aristocrats. And one time when Turgenev went to visit Tolstoy's estate, Yasnaya Poliana, he's playing with all the children. He's trying to be like the good uncle figure. And clearly Tolstoy just thought this was pathetic. And in his diary that that night after having watched uh, Turgenev dancing around like a madman with all of his kids, Tolstoy wrote, Turgenev's can-can, sad. Which I often wonder if Donald Trump <laughs> I read know. that. I was going to say, it sounds like yeah, a Donald Trump long tweet. before. It's crushing. I mean, it how withering. Yeah. <laughs> if someone wrote Katie's can-can, sad, <laughs> in a diary, I'd just be like, wow, I don't even remember doing the can-can. I feel embarrassed now. <laughs> The persistence, though, of all of them throughout different personal crises, horrible, sometimes very personal domestic things, the death of children. One of the things I found incredibly moving, and I've heard you talk about her before, was the poet Anna Akhmatova, who seemed to me to have lived through an incredibly hard period in terms of being a writer and emerged somehow triumphant at the end. We've, um, we have a, a clip of you reading a part of her story, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. So let's just have a listen to that. As if all this wasn't already a huge burden, much of her work was produced in impossible circumstances. She couldn't have it published because she was not on the list of writers approved by the state. She couldn't even physically write anything down because her home was routinely searched by the KGB as were the homes of all her friends. It was illegal not only to publish anti-state material, but to write it in the first place. To prevent them being confiscated, Akhmatova's poems were preserved in what was known as pre-Gutenberg conditions. They were part of oral history, not written down, just remembered, in the way poetry was written, i.e. committed to memory, for years before print was invented. Nadezhda Mandelstam, the wife of the poet Osip, writes about how impressed she was with Akhmatova's discretion as she worked on her poetry. Nadezhda had witnessed her own husband speaking the verses to himself and judged that Akhmatova was much less overt. She did not even allow her lips to move, as M did so openly, but rather, I think, pressed them tighter as she composed her poems and her mouth became set in an even sadder way. In the early 1960s, Akhmatova revealed that she had entrusted a handful of people with her work. Eleven people knew Requiem by heart, and not one of them betrayed me, she said. 
I mean, what an amazing thing. She had to think of a line of poetry without moving her mouth, then write it on a piece of paper, then have someone come around and memorise it, and then she would burn it in front of them. Yeah. And she has a whole body of work now. Did she? Am I right that she died in the 1960s? Yes, she died in 1963. So she outlived Stalin by 10 years. Amazing. She was a figure who was protected in some ways by virtue of the fact that she was a woman, in my view. All of the men around her were targeted, uh, male writers, two of her husbands, her son. And they were sent, sent to, the to the gulag. Yeah, all and, just killed. And one of her poems centres around that, doesn't it? This waiting in line for news for days and days and days and a very touching, just a small moment, but so touching of another woman who turns to her and recognises her as a writer and essentially makes a plea for her to record this in some way, the, the suffering of women waiting for news of the men they loved. Yeah, she's so Akhmatova's fate is to be one of the women waiting, not only for news, but also in queues to give over packages because you were only allowed to give a certain number of items every year to be sent away to the gulag. And this this was life or death stuff, where if that scarf didn't get through or that hat or that package of tea, that, that person could, could starve or freeze to death. And you never really knew, because it was also arbitrary, the system, whether they would take your package or not. So you would go lots of times in the hope of getting an extra one through. And one time a woman comes up to Akhmatova in the queue. This would have been in the 19th. 30s and says can you describe this can you write about this and it's an interesting phrase in Russian because it doesn't literally mean you're a writer can you can you write this down it means something like can you put this into words can anyone put this into words it's so indescribable mm-hmm. and of course she takes that as a challenge and writes, well, not even writes, <laughs> makes people <laughs> makes people memorise this poem, these poor 11 people who had this crushing pressure of having to remember this. It's about nine pages long, this poem. But they manage it and it exists, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she wrote um, hundreds and hundreds of lines of poetry in this way. And one of the reasons it's, it's, it seems unjust that she is not up there in terms of name recognition as some of the other Russian writers is because when you write about other women, it's considered small or domestic or somehow not as significant. It's only really now, I think, that people are starting to look at her as one of the greatest writers of the 20th century who happens to be a woman. But I think that she's sort of going to be coming back in in the next few years and we'll hear more about her. And one of the other strong themes is this sense of unrequited love, which you talk about with Turgenev's A Month in the Country, and we'll chat more about that in a moment. Uh, But you had your own experience of unrequited love, didn't you? Which brings us on to your final object. Can you explain what it is? This album is Red Hot Chili Peppers, and it was... What's the title of the album? I can't remember it now. Uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Okay, yes. So this is Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which must have come out in the late 80s. So when I was in St. Petersburg, 93, 94 for that year, uh, it was very popular with, with Russians. A lot of people were still literally listening to the Beatles and asking me questions like, do you know Uriah Heep? And I had, I'd never heard of Uriah Heep in my life. And there was no internet where I could look this up. So they were very upset that I didn't know who Uriah Heep was. Mm-hmm. And even worse, when I didn't know anything about King Crimson. King Crimson? King Crimson. 
I don't know what King Crimson is some weird 1970s prog rock thing. Right, okay. If you know about it, you really know about it. Some countries have a bit of a blind spot, don't they, about certain things that we don't quite understand. A bit like Germany and David Hasselhoff. Yes, so people were into that kind of music. But the cool thing was to love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I fell in love with a guitarist in a band called Kolnichech. Supposedly a British name. Colney Hatch. Colney Hatch. Isn't that like a road near Muswell Hill or something? Colney Hatch, they claimed, the the people in this band who were from the Ukraine. I'm sure I've had my car MOT'd on Colney Hatch Lane. You probably have. Well, they claimed that Colney Hatch was the site of the first ever lunatic asylum in England. Possibly, possibly. I think I've looked this up since and it's not true at all, but that was why they chose the name of their band, because they're crazy. (laughs) And this... This band was inspired by the Red Hot Chili Peppers and I was hanging around all the time with this band um, because I was in love with the guitarist who became my my boyfriend and he is called in the book Bogdan Bogdanovich, which is a real Russian name but wasn't his real name, although he has a very similar name, which means gift of God, son of gift of God and that was how I regarded him. But this band, <laughs> they their version of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it was Ukraine's answer to Red Hot Chili Peppers and they had lyrics in English that would go something like this. I've got bell-bottom trousers. I walk through pimply mouthers. They look at me. They talk about me. They suck their stinking croziers. And I would pantomime what this meant to me and are you sure you mean to say crozier and you sure you mean to say pimply mouthers and they would say yes (laughs) and so my critique of their lyrics was was never useful to them they just went ahead with their crazy lyrics and yet you were in love with oh I was deeply in love I was you know 20 21 I wanted to be Russian yes you talk about this but it almost feels like a turning point for you as well in this sort of search for your own identity and whether you have this Russian soul that people keep talking about and you talk about a crossroads uh, with him and this life in Russia that you're cultivating and but also feeling the call of England and almost leaving him became symbolic of leaving that or leaving even a part of yourself. I came to realise at the end of that year I was in a real crisis when I went back after the end of that year and I I wanted to leave university. I didn't see the point to anything anymore. And my parents can always remember my poor, long-suffering parents, who I didn't speak to for six months because they were polluting my language acquisition. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, one way my, of putting my it. My parents <laughs> can remember me coming home and opening the fridge in our house when I came back from a year in Russia and just crying because there was so much food. And I realised how my whole mentality had just been shifted by that year. But the moment when things sort of really went wrong, I would say, with my Ukrainian love was when he gave me head lice. That'll do and, it. Um, Thank God I, they were head lice. And yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not being euphemistic here. They literally were head lice. Uh, did you take any solace from Turgenev and his unrequited love? He, I believe he followed an opera singer around the world. That's right. Well, Turgenev is the king of unrequited love in his own life uh, with this Pauline Viardot, who he was madly in love with. Who she, was married to another man. Who was married to another man and was never going to leave him. But he also writes about this beautifully uh, in his play, A Month in the Country. I was reading that play at the same time that I was coming to this decision as to whether to dig deeper into this love of Russia and the love of this man or whether actually it's all an illusion and 
it's one-sided and I need to wake up to myself. And I can remember reading Turgenev and thinking, yeah, I don't want to be like Rakitin. I don't want to... He's killing himself. And that's one really useful thing about literature is that when you can't see how stupid you are, you can see how stupid the characters in a book are. And sometimes it can wake you up to yourself. I think the lovely thing as well, just just wrap up this really enjoyable conversation, really interesting conversation as well. I've learned a lot from your book, which I love. But the, uh, there's a little, just a little detail at the end, which I think is rather lovely in terms of fate and delusion and ancestry and all of this sort of stuff, which is, yes, you you felt from an early age that you were Russian in your soul, that you thought your name was Russian, and this started this whole life, career, choices, everything about trying to find yourself in Russia or find Russia in you. And then this email arrives and slightly shatters the dream that actually your ancestors are from Poland. But what's really nice is that the ancestor that they're referring to, the place in Poland that they uh, lived was actually part of a Russian territory at the time and they actually described themselves from time to time as Russian or Prussian. So did that just give you a little bit of comfort? You weren't wholly wrong. No, it was wonderful when I found that out because we eventually went and looked at all of the census records from the UK because my great-great-grandfather came over to Stockton-on-Tees in 1861, according to the census. And every five years he gives a different response to where he's from. I mean, he never says Poland because Poland didn't exist as a country. So sometimes he just doesn't really say anything. Other times he says Prussia. Sometimes he says Russia. He was from Łódź, L-O-D-Z, uh, in modern-day Poland. That area was controlled by Russia. But the sad fact is I can't totally delude myself. He would not have identified as Russian or Polish. He would have identified as Jewish. And he would have spoken Yiddish. Yiddish would have been the only language that he knew. I feel like this is a whole new book for you, isn't it? Yiddish. Yiddish well, literature. I do. Discovering your Jewish it's, Yiddish roots. I was only the other day looking at a Yiddish joke book and thinking, I'm 45, is that too old to learn Yiddish? Well, it has begun. <laughs> it has begun. The next stage in your life odyssey is absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing all your objects uh, with us and also all these insights into this fantastic book, the Anna Karenina Fix by Viv Groskop. Uh, it's part memoir, it's part self-help, it's part fantastic opener and primer to this incredible world of Russian literature that I have been intimidated by for my whole reading life and I'm not going to be anymore. And I really hope that some of our listeners uh, also dive into your book and then as a result of that into this fantastic uh, riches of Russian literature so thank you so much for joining us Viv uh, and uh, telling us all about this extraordinary world that you have discovered thank you teeny tiny little Katie <laughs> thank you The Terrible by Ursa Daly Ward this is the unforgettable memoir of a young poet Ursa Daly Ward tells the story of her life with courageous honesty and takes the reader through a whirlwind of emotions as she deals with sexuality, racial identity, drugs and abuse. Living in Chorley, up in the north, we were closer to the sky than most. What luck. Little Vu often saw things written in the stars. Signs, facts and other things. I'm telling you. He knew why adults said the things they said and why they didn't mean the things they said and even less what they did. Sometimes it wasn't answers that he found, 
but entirely perfect questions. A genius, my little brother. Written in verse and performed like poetry, The Terrible is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.